In this special episode, I begin by interviewing Tracy Taylor, an expert in vitrification who works for the UK's National Nuclear Laboratory. I started off by asking her about the process of vitrification. The process of vitrification is to convert a material into a glass through rapid cooling so that it's not able to crystallise. This involves heating up a mixture of glassy materials often to really high temperatures to a thousand degrees plus. So that's nicely mixed and then rapidly cooled either by air or putting into water so that these crystals cannot form. Excellent. And this is a process that is used to treat the really radioactive liquid waste that is left over as a result of extracting useful fission products from used nuclear fuel. Why is it important to vitrify this type of waste? The reprocessing waste that comes through is in a liquid form and it has a high volume. If we decided to store that as a liquid form, it would need highly engineered containers and a large footprint in terms of area to store that in. So the best thing to do is to vitrify it. This not only makes it a safe, stable solid, but also it reduces the storage volume to make it smaller. It also has the advantage of being really safe It's durable. There's glasses that we know that have been around since the Egyptian time. So they're over 3,500 years old and they still look exactly the same as they were when they were made. So we know it's safe and durable. Wow. And I think we've been vitrifying nuclear waste in the UK since the 1990s. Yes, that's correct. That happens on Sellafield site. The plant was commissioned in 1989 and the first glasses that were made in 1990. So I feel like we've probably learned quite a lot in that time. Um, yes, yes. So what are the most important things that we've learned in the intervening decades? I think so. So the early stages, really fast pace in terms of trying to improve the process. The NFL set up a research department to look into how can we improve the sort of process operations? Can we make it faster? Can we put more waste in? So it was all really fast paced. A lot of research was done. A lot of money was put in to basically improve that process. It's surprising whenever we all work together as a team, we can, we can drive things forward very quickly. Now Sellafield's sort of changing into a decommissioning phase. There's different challenges, different wastes that are needed to be treated. So it's a little bit slower, a little bit more targeted research. It's the right thing to do. Take our time, make sure we deliver the correct solution to the problem. Of course. And I don't think you've been working in vitrification since the 1990s. No. How did you come to work in the field? It was by chance, really. So about a year into my graduate programme within um, the National Nuclear Laboratory, I was offered a secondment on the vitrification test rig. So that is a very unique facility within the UK. It is a full mock-up of the um, radioactive plants on Sellafield, but it is completely non-radioactive. So you can get hands-on. Yeah, it's a really interesting opportunity. It was only supposed to be a two-year position and... Let's say the rest is history. 12 years later, I am still working in vitrification, albeit on a smaller scale within the laboratory. So you must really enjoy it in that case. And uh, the vitrification test rig is where the samples that we used in the art exhibition have come from? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, it demonstrates that it's still delivering valuable research and interesting stuff to look at. Mm -hmm. So what's your interest in glass or in vitrification? I have three interests in glass. I have an academic interest, so sort of the fundamental science and technology of glass and vitrification. In fact, I'm I'm the industrial supervisor to a PhD student who has generated some of the images that are projected on the walls here. 
I have an industrial interest from the point of delivering a solution to the high-level nuclear waste at Sellafield. And finally, which is quite unusual, for, I would say, for a scientist, an artistic interest. I have a keen pastime of glass fusing. I make bowls. I make ornaments. I've even dabbled with glass blowing, which is which is really good. And actually, in my free time, I can actually be seen walking down the beaches of West Cumbria with my head down searching for sea glass. Quite an addictive hobby. So, yeah, my interest in glass is wide-ranging. And I guess that sea glass proves it is quite durable as well. It doesn't tend to dissolve in water. It doesn't dissolve in water. The reason why it is sometimes so small is just the pure bashing and the physical interaction with the stones on the beach that actually degrade the glass, not necessarily the the durability. And I like the fact that you don't just do the science behind it. You're an artist as well with glass. It's great. So you mentioned that the point of vitrification is to turn something into glass. And it should be durable and all that jazz. But how do you know when you've made a, a good glass? What is good? What is good? This is an interesting one. So I would say for most of you, you would see glass as being transparent, so often clear, brown, blue, green. You can see through it. So the glasses that are made on the vitrification test rig, they are black and opaque. So what makes a good product? So I think the first and foremost it needs to be completely homogeneous. I don't want any streaks in it. I don't want any different areas that are different flecks, different materials that haven't reacted with the glass product. And it can't contain a large amount of bubbles or cracks. To me, that isn't a very good product. So that's the visual inspection. So when we get to the product, we have a look at it. Is it and those are, those are the first two things we judge. It's then when we get into a laboratory setting, we test things against international standards, like the durability. And then also when we look at the material on a sort of microscopic level to understand sort of the non-glass components. Okay, so when you said durability and you said there are standard tests, is that about how it interacts with water? It is, yes. So the durability in terms of a glass product is how it interacts with the water in a groundwater situation in a deep geological repository. If we have a product that is not very durable, um, what we term dissolves like a boiled sweet, (laughs) (laughs) we know that that is not not a suitable product. So what we want it to be is long lasting for, well, it's not just tens of years, hundreds of years, it's tens of thousands of years. We want this to be a product that is stable and durable for that length of time. So looking really far into the future and trying to predict what might happen. Yes. You said that ideally you want something that looks purely like glass and you're trying to avoid having crystals in there. But the samples in the art exhibition, the images that we've got, you can see that they do contain crystals. So can you say a little bit about why they form? It's mainly due to the cooling. So as I mentioned before, that the process of vitrification is to form a glass by rapid cooling. However, on the vitrification plant at Sellafield, the glass product is made into steel containers and they're quite large. And in the middle, this is where the crystallisation happens because the cooling happens a lot slower. And these non-glassy materials, the crystals, can preferentially form Okay, and you said that ideally you don't want to have crystals in there. You want it. You want a good glass to be all the same. So, is there an advantage to having crystals in the glass? On occasions, there can be advantages of having crystals in the glass. They actually can be more durable than the um, waste form of the glass. Other cases are not necessarily a disadvantage, but they do need to be managed from the point of view of the operational plant. And they can cause blockages or enrichment, which is unwanted because it can cause downtime within the operational plant. Okay. And a lot of the images in the exhibition involve samples that have got these 
platinoid bearing crystals in them. So why are they of interest in the vitrification of this nuclear waste? Platinoids are not soluble in glass at all. The glass to treat high level waste, that is. They are encapsulated. These crystals are surrounded by the glass matrix and not part of the glass itself. They are often denser and even in large enough quantities, they can form a mixture, for example, like an alloy, a mixture of metals and can settle out and cause the operational plant to um, shut down. Short and sweet, I get it. So I'm going to change tack slightly and go back to talking about you. Is there anything that surprises you about your work? I think for me, it's what surprises me about the work is the unknown. I've been working within the area of vitrification and glass for 12 years, and I still know very little about glass. <laughs> um, it's, it's surprising to say that. It's, it's a little bit embarrassing. So, for example, I can do all the background research and design a nice fancy set of experiments to do to prove a theory. And the results will come back proving the opposing. <laughs> so you can imagine this can be very frustrating and intriguing. So sometimes it's the unknown and how, even though I have 12 plus years of experience, I still know very little. And that is just in the area of uh, nuclear waste glass. There's other areas like dental glass, which is really interesting. There's metallic glasses. The field of glass is wide. It's massive. And I am a little dot within a sheet of paper. I think that is most scientists you get really specific in a, like a really specialist area and there are always things you don't know that's why you do science right to learn more because you're curious about the world but sometimes you can be very convinced that i've designed this i know it's going to go this way or i know the results before or i'm predicting the results before and when something comes back oh right hmm that didn't go as planned or I wasn't expecting that. So yeah, so from it can be very frustrating. Where did I go wrong? Is it my fault? Did I design it wrong? Well, actually, no, it is quite a new field. So yeah, it's the unknown that surprises me. Along a similar line, is there anything that intrigues you about this specific material or anything that astounds you about generally the nature of your work? I mean, you're, you're working in a really specialist field. I'm intrigued about sort of the artistic side of glass. So sort of the uranium glasses that are made, what we call the petroleum jelly type glass, and how it's how it can fluoresce under UV light. And I think that's, that's quite beautiful. So that what intrigues me. What astounds me is the work that I do to support Sellafield. All the research that I've done supports the glass that's going to be stored in a deep geological repository for tens of thousands of years. So my great, 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 great-grandchildren and beyond are going to be around when I have put that research into that glass. So it's just the timescales, that's what astounds me about um, nuclear waste. The legacy that all of these scientists and engineers are leaving for the future, the idea is that you should be sort of um, finding a way to manage this waste, get rid of it effectively or dispose of it so that future generations don't have to be too concerned with it. Correct, yes. In terms of a legacy, I'm not certainly not going to get a blue plaque on the side of a building. It's just a nice thing to know that I was involved in that. Unless I, you know, have become a Nobel Prize winner and there might be a blue plaque on my house one day. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it's just nice to know that the work that I do, it has a purpose for the greater good of managing nuclear waste. So that's all about how glass is made by people and how it's used to immobilise nuclear waste. Glass is also made in nature by geological processes. Brian O'Driscoll is a professor at the University of Ottawa in Canada, having recently moved from the UK University where he was involved in this project. What is your interest in natural or volcanic glass? Well, volcanic activity is 
the surface expression of the formation and movement of magma within the Earth's crust. Volcanic glass is a special type of mostly erupted magma. And my interests in volcanic glass stem from trying to understand how the particular volcanoes that erupted them behave, as well as understanding the material, sort of physical and the chemical properties of the lava as it moves right after eruption up to the point that it solidifies. I've mainly worked on obsidian flows from the Aeolian Islands in southern Italy, where there are some spectacular examples preserved on the islands of, of Lipari and Vulcano. Wow, that sounds uh, quite complicated. <laughs> so how does the volcanic glass form? Volcanic glass is magma that cools down very quickly from temperatures greater than 750 degrees Celsius so quickly that crystals have not been able to form. It may also form from magma that loses its gas uh, really quick. So perhaps as a, as a result of a, a really dramatic volcanic explosion. Obsidian flows move extremely slowly. This is because the magma that forms them is really, really viscous, so really sticky. So their movement, actually, the movement of these obsidian lava flows might appear to have more in common with a glacier than the runny basalt flows that we see from places like Hawaii. Wow. And the exhibition that this episode is part of is all about human-made glasses that have got crystals in. And you said that crystals don't normally form in the volcanic glass, but is it possible? And what's the process that where that happens? So crystals can form in glass, but they're not common. The cooling down process that causes glass to form means that crystals have a problem nucleating. So they have a problem getting started. We can get little crystalline spheres made of of radiating branches of of crystals. Geologists, we we call these uh, spherolites, and you might see them um, in some of the samples associated with the exhibition. These signify rapid cooling. Sometimes the magma that goes on to form volcanic glass can pick up bits and pieces of crystal material from within the volcano on its way to the surface. But these crystal cargos, as we we call them, are different to those that grow in the magma itself. Okay. And are the crystals of particular interest to you? Uh, Yeah. All crystals are are interesting. To the geologists, they, they carry information about what has happened to them on their journey from the initial nucleation and growth all the way to the final stages of solidification of that magma. Crystals can tell us about timescales of eruption, about the chemistry of the magma, and about processes going on within magma chambers and within the vents or the conduits that bring magma to the surface. And for the nuclear glass samples, the same is true. The crystals are an expression of the bulk chemistry and the cooling regime of the glass. So a really nice example of that is the shape of the powellite crystals in the glass in this exhibition. Again, as geologists, we would call these um, or refer to their shapes as, as dendritic or skeletal crystal forms. And that's a result of the really rapid cooling following or associated with, with quenching. We would expect crystals that grow more slowly to have nice faceted sides. I'm imagining diamonds now. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the crystals can tell you something about the history of that glass. 
and they can tell you about what's happening inside a volcano. Absolutely. Wow. One common way we use them is to look at different compositional chemical zones within crystals, a bit like tree rings. So we can map out within crystals different zones that correspond either to changes in the chemical environment or changes um, perhaps related to eruption uh, even. Wow. And some of the samples on display at Florence Art Centre, they've got these platinoid bearing crystals in them. Are they of any particular interest for, to geologists? Yeah, so for my own interests, um, I'm, I'm a geologist very interested in the chemistry of platinoids in, in natural magmas and how economic concentrations of these metals form in, in natural environments. So when I discovered these nuclear glass simulated materials contained platinoid compounds, I was, I was fascinated. The platinum group elements, so mainly ruthenium and palladium isotopes that are formed in the, in the nuclear fuel in the reactor, go on to produce these mostly unreactive metallic particles so they get vitrified with the rest of the waste the interest from from the industry side in these materials concerns operational issues with the waste glasses so one example is they can settle out of the glass if they're present in in large quantities and accumulate in large quantities and, and cause blockages perhaps uh, that interfere with with pouring of that melt obviously this is a problem um, when the melt being handled is is highly radioactive so, I mean, for me, um, I, I guess looking at the comparisons between how the platinoids behave in these nuclear glasses and natural magmatic examples is, is really interesting because there's similarities and differences between both systems. Right. So you can use the nuclear waste glasses, the non-radioactive surrogates of them, to tell you something about what happens inside volcanoes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So <laughs> we can learn from human-made uh, samples. So human-made uh, materials have the advantage that we can control both the chemical ingredients that go into making the glass, as well as the conditions of solidification in carefully regulated experiments. For example, how quickly we let the glass cool or what volume of, of glass we choose to make. These can have a big impact on the end product and what that looks like. And for sure, we have therefore a better understanding of how nuclear glass is, is made compared to the glass that forms from a magma that's cooked up at the bottom of a, a volcano, where we can only make guesses, pretty educated guesses, but guesses as to what's happening. Oh. Platinoid bearing phases, are they particularly prevalent in the volcanic glasses or are they like a really special case that need different consideration? Yeah, they're, they're very rare. So the concentrations of the platinum group metals in normal rocks is on the order of parts per trillion to parts per billion. And where we find economic concentrations of the platinum group metals in, in rocks, also very rare, very uncommon. One fact that I like to tell people in respect of this is that most of the world's platinum comes, and I'm talking probably about 60-70% of the world's exploited platinum, comes from one ancient huge magma chamber in, in the geological record. That's located in, in South Africa, a two billion year old magma chamber that today the solidified remnants of give us 60% or so of our platinum that we use for anthropogenic purposes. And I, I feel like platinum is particularly useful, but I couldn't really say what, I guess, because it's so rare. 
Ah, that is interesting. And it gets made in nuclear reactors. So if we could extract it somehow, it could be useful. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So platinum is, um, it has a wide range of uses, as do the other platinum group metals. Probably the most common everyday use is, is as an important part of the catalytic converters in, in people's cars. Uh, so helping reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, indeed. Yeah. So basically the way catalytic converters work is they turn the toxic gases from your car, from the exhaust fumes in your car to relatively harmless water vapor and, and um, other things. Ah, and all that from volcanoes and nuclear waste. <laughs> yeah. So final question. This is quite a big question. So I'll be interested to hear what you say. And it's fine to say, I don't know. But how do you think this science could contribute to our wider understanding of the world or even the universe? Um, so platinum group elements form in a, in a wide variety of, of minerals in the rocks that crystallize from, from magmas. On the scientific side, they're useful because we can use them to tell us about the ages of deep-seated magmatic events within the Earth. So personally speaking, from my own research, I've used platinum group minerals to gain insights into the opening and closing of oceans, of ocean basins on the Earth 500 million years ago. Other people look at platinum group minerals in meteorites and meteorite samples. Some types of meteorite contain platinum group minerals that are actually older than the solar system. So these are a really cool uh, mineral group, the platinum group minerals. Um, they're a really cool mineral group to study. Understanding where platinum group minerals occurs in rocks is also important because we can gain insights into the, the natural environments where they're concentrated as precious metals. They're critical metals. And what that means is that they're going to be important for clean energy applications. Platinum is going to be important for hydrogen fuel cells, for example. So going forward to the energy transition and decarbonization, of, they could have a really important role to play. Wow. Is that in a similar way to the converter, the platinum would allow a reaction to happen? It's pretty similar. It, well, it's similar in the sense that the platinum group metals, particularly platinum and palladium, for example, they're reaction catalysts. So they speed up chemical reactions. And that's why they're so useful. <laughs>